I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you a special festive delight. Uh, Patrick McGuire will be back with daily episodes of the podcast from January the 2nd. I'll be back on the 9th. But until then, we're going to be dropping our Leader of the Opposition feature in your timelines every day. In 2021, we rounded up every Prime Minister with Andrew Jimson. And in 2022, Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies has been telling us about every Leader of the Opposition who crucially never made it to number 10. From Charles James Fox all the way through to Keir Starmer. So let's get on with it then. Hit the montage. Leader of the pack. definition of the leader of the opposition first of all before we get stuck into this week well it's a it's quite a tricky definition that you've you've given me because if we if we exclude those who didn't become prime minister um it's quite hard sometimes to work out who actually was leading the opposition because if you go back into the sort of 18th century um, and even sort of into the 19th century a bit um parties weren't as well defined as they are today so you can't uh, identify always who was the the leader of a particular party it was much more personalized and so you go back into the so 18th century and MPs sort of gathered around particular leading individuals so you have um, in the case of today you're talking about the, the fox sites um, people who sort of gather around a particular individual um, and so the party labels are quite, are quite difficult so often it's it's only when they become prime minister or they start to lead a government that you can say well they were clearly leading a a faction that then became <laughs> successful. So your definition has been really difficult from um, a sort of political perspective. Um, but if you look on um, sort of a um, uh, a certain web-based um, encyclopedic resource, um, they've come up with a, a, a sort of list of leaders of the, op- of the opposition um, from um, actually the person after um, Charles James Fox, who we're looking at um, today. Um, but they can you can identify sort of just about who was leading in um, both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So that's another complicating factor because prime ministers, of course, came either from the House of Lords or from the House of Commons up until the, the sort of twentieth century. Um, and so it can be quite difficult to work out. You know, was the person who was leading this faction against the government in the House of Lords the leader of the opposition, or was it the person in the House of Commons? Um, <laughs> so it's quite a difficult way of doing it. So um, if people want to object to the to the list we come up with, then um, then please do so. But it's um, it's it's quite fluid. 
Right, they can object if they want to. It's not going to stop us uh, still doing it and playing the music. And before we get stuck into Charles James Fox, um, I mentioned that you, you set up the Centre for Opposition Studies. And I just think this in itself is really interesting because so much goes into studying prime ministers, cabinets, governments, parliament even. It's, it's quite an under-investigated area of sort of political history opposition, isn't it? Despite the fact that, that if you're, you know, if you're Keir Starmer right now, looking at successful and unsuccessful oppositions is quite a key part, possibly, of um, making a success of it today. Oh, completely. Um, and the reason for setting up the Centre for Opposition Studies, which um, I did sort of getting on for 12 years ago now, um, with my um, colleague, uh, Mohammed Abdul Haq, um, we've set, set that up, really, because we sort of looked around and there just wasn't any um, defined study of, of opposition as a political um, subject. You've got sort of centres for, well, the Institute for Government does great work on, on government um, and sort of has you know vast numbers of staff um, working on um, studying the intricacies of government. You've got departments of government in universities around the world as well. Um, and people study government because it's an important sort of aspect of, of politics. But my argument is that opposition is sort of the other half of the political equation. Um, and so if you're looking at um, opposition, um, you're, you're looking at the bit that sort of in many ways shapes the government of the future. Um, so it's, it's important in that respect, but it's also important in terms of what it does in the here and now. You know, the, whether you've got an effective opposition to the government affects how that government does. Um, so, yeah, I think if you don't study opposition, you're only studying half the, the, the political <laughs> equation. The one side of the coin. OK, then here we go. Then this is our first Leader of the opposition, Charles James Fox. Yeah, give us the you know the dates of the numbers first of all, so we know sort of where <laughs> we're talking about. Well, he was born in um, seventeen forty nine, um, and he was um, from a, a long line of uh, sort of Stuart um, politicians. He was born exactly a hundred years after Charles the first was executed, and his grandfather uh, was one of the page boys to Charles the first. Um, on the scaffold when he was executed so he's he comes from a, a sort of long line of um of sort of Stuart um royalists um which is interesting when you come on to how his later career develops when he was um heavily in opposition um to the crown um, and to to George III particularly um and on his mother's side he's actually related uh to Charles I he was an offspring um of um Charles II and his dalliance with um the duchess of portsmouth um and so he um he's descended on his mother's side as a great great grand uh, grandson of uh, charles ii um so he comes from sort of quite a, a sort of long line um on on that side um his father uh, had been a minister was an M mp um and had made a, a fortune in rather questionable circumstances he was paymaster general um in the government um, and at, at that time, um, being paymaster general usually meant that you ended your time in office with rather more money than you had when you started. Um, <laughs> and that really set up the family um, uh, from that perspective. And even in even by the standards of the day, that was looked upon um, fairly suspiciously. And he spent most of his career actually defending his father's reputation. Um, and it's a lot of his biographers say that that's something which was is, is essential in understanding his um his life that he he was spending his career sort of um defending his father who had heavily indulged him as a as a child um then he was um sort of elected uh, as a uh, an mp 
uh, actually at the age of 19, uh, he was technically ineligible to be elected, but um, then he was um, elected for uh, the seat of Midhurst, um, which was a, a rotten borough, of course, um, one of the sort of Blackadder seats where uh, the, there were some oh, more, of course, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where sort of the elector and you get introduced to him. Um, and then there was um, a sort of a, an early career where he sort of made his name by um, making um, sort of impressive speeches uh, in, in the House of Commons. But the thing that's most important about him and in terms of the his record in, in office is that, and the reason I've, I've chosen him as sort of the first definitive uh, sort of opposition figure that we can identify is that he he's a name that resonates down history, down through history, despite the fact that he was never prime minister um, and that he spent most of his career in opposition. He spent 22 years um, from uh, seven, uh, 1784, almost 1783, um, 22 years in opposition to William Pitt. Um, and he had a couple of brief uh, uh, sort of moments in uh, in office. He was actually our first foreign secretary to go back to what, what you were talking about earlier um, <laughs> and the, for, the foreign office. When they reorganised government, it used to be that there was sort of two secretaries of state, one for the northern department, one for the southern department. When they reorganised um, government um, in 1782 and around about, so then he became the first foreign secretary uh, briefly. Um, but we don't really remember him for that. Um, his second period as Foreign Secretary at the end of his long period in opposition uh, and just before he died in 1806 um, he was Foreign Secretary and was responsible for um, the first uh, measures to abolish the slave trade and that's what he's uh, if anything sort of largely remembered for in government terms um, but it's his his reputation as a parliamentarian and as an oppositionist that sort of really made his name um, and that's why I think he's, he's quite an interesting one for us to start with. It's interesting. So he there, there was sort of nine. You said that you know, he faced uh, Pitt the Younger, but there were sort of eight or nine prime ministers before Pitt the. So if we take Walpole as being the first mm. uh, one, so who was going up against Walpole and others in the House of Commons? Well, from the beginning, sort of of, of when we can identify a prime minister, there will have been individuals who you can sort of at various times say were leading the opposition. Um, but actually, for a lot of the, the, the period, um, and this is, is what's interesting about sort of the, the most significant um, sort of part of, of um, Fox's opposition period, which was the Regency crisis, um, the madness of King George. Um, and what's interesting about that is that for most of the period from Walpole onwards, the person who was the, the most prominent leader of the opposition uh, was usually the Prince of Wales. Um, because <laughs> it wasn't very long um, since anyone who went up against the king and went up against the, the monarch um, would be guilty of treason. Uh, you know, how do you criticise the king for what he's doing without it coming across as treason? And so we have the development of what we call loyal opposition. Um, and to ensure that you can be seen as being utterly loyal to the crown, whilst at the same time heavily attacking the government, what better way is there of doing that than sort of hiding behind the um, coattails of the next king um, and so you have a rival court and this happened throughout uh, the Georgian okay. period you have um, sort of this rival um, power base that is the next monarch so the Prince of Wales you had what was at one time called the, the uh, Leicester House opposition you know named after the Prince of Wales's um, then house and and so you have parliamentarians who sort of gather around um, the Prince of Wales as, as sort of their, their champion and this happened with Fox, he was very much seen as the, you know, the Prince of Wales's man. And so when George III 
had his temporary illness, um, that was the, the moment at which Fox really thought he was going to become Prime Minister. Um, and spoiler alert, if you've not seen The Madness of King George, um, the King recovers. Uh, and that's when Fox really <laughs> lost, lost his chance and, that's and continued in opposition. That was Charles James Fox, the very first leader of the opposition. Up next, it's George Ponsonby. I think it's it's often said that people don't sort of know who people in opposition are, and um, George Ponsonby is certainly not a name that's really resonated in quite the same way as um, Charles James Fox. Um, we didn't get on, by the way, last week to talk about uh, one of the most famous things about, um, about Fox, which is his... Uh, um, his liking of the high life. Um, I, th- I think there, there's a man who could certainly um, put away a suitcase um, full of wine. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, so and indeed, quite famously, when he was um, introducing his first major measure in, in Parliament, he was out drinking all night um, uh, before he came into the House of Commons and hadn't bothered to draft his speech um, uh, before he got there. I can't imagine anyone uh, these days doing that. Can you? <laughs> it seems, it seems it's, it's so hard to believe. So hard. To it's believe. very so, difficult to believe. But talk, George Ponsonby. Talk, yes, talk. Let's talk about George Ponsonby. Let's talk um, about him. Um, How did he? Uh, uh, I read somewhere that he's he's now seen as the first leader of the opposition rather than an opposition. Yeah, and and he's classified on sort of Wikipedia as being the first um, sort of identifiable leader of the opposition in in the House of Commons and. Um, that's really because he was explicitly sort of nominated by the the Whig leaders in the House of Lords at the time. Um, but what's the, the first thing to note about him? He was um, born in 1755. Um, he was an, actually an Irish politician, um, and he went to school in Ireland. Uh, his father had been Speaker of the Irish House of Commons. Um, this was at a time when, of course, the uh, before the Act of Union in 1801. Uh, when Ireland was being governed from London, but there was still a, um, a separate parliament. Um, so effectively, it devolved government. And he was quite active in, in Irish politics there. He was um, gained a couple of quite lucrative um, positions, which brought him um, quite a lot of money um, from positions in the Irish government. Um, but then he went into opposition, and he was quite um, notable for uh, opposing the abolition of the Irish parliament and, and the Act of Union. Um, so whilst he was in opposition, he he continued his his legal practice. He was a um, a lawyer um, and quite a celebrated one, sort of the Jeffrey Cox of his day, really, um, fighting a number of um, cases uh, in uh, in sort of um, in in Ireland that were quite notable. Um, but then uh, he applied himself to fighting the the Act of Union and stopping the abolition of. Um, of the Irish Parliament, um, and he was successful to some degree in that. He got it delayed for a year in 1799, um, but of course it eventually happened. Um, and after that, he uh, went to Westminster. He was elected to the uh, the new, newly sort of united UK Parliament um, as the MP for County Wicklow, um, and he allied himself there with the Whigs, our friend um, Fox. Um, and when Fox um, went into the uh, into the short-lived government of all the talents. Um, in 1806, Ponsonby was also um, appointed to office then. He became Lord Chancellor uh, of Ireland. Um, and uh, obviously, that for someone who was a lawyer and came from Irish politics, that was quite a significant um, accolade. But really, like a lot of the leaders we're talking about, because by definition, we're choosing the ones who didn't become prime minister, um, their periods of in office sort of tend to be the, the things they're most um, notable for. And he um, that was really the pinnacle of his um, career in uh, in office. 
um, and he then went into uh, into opposition. Um, and as you say, he's identified as being the first sort of um, leader of the opposition that we can say was definitely um, the leader there, because uh, the, the Whigs at that time were led from the House of Lords. You had Earl Grey um, and Lord Greville um, in the House of Lords, um, and they were really the sort of the ones who um, who were leading the the opposition to the government there. And of course, if if there had been a a Whig government, they would have been the ones in line to be Prime Minister. But in the House of Commons, uh, you had a, a need for a leader there to, to oppose the government. Um, and they specifically chose Ponsonby as being the most likely person. Um, and so Was that's why good? I think he's, he's identified. Was he any good? I mean, he was there for a long time, from what, 1808 to 1817. Um, I should uh, point out, so in terms of the prime ministers he was up against, uh, the Duke of Portland, Spencer Percival, who uh, nerds will remember, is the only prime minister to be assassinated, and then the the Earl of Liverpool as well. So mm. he sort of out-survived out, out several prime ministers. But did he, did he have much... I suppose he didn't have sufficient impact to actually become prime minister himself, but to, to survive for, what, nine years mm. as, as leader of the opposition. It was only... He, he only stopped being leader of the opposition because he died rather than because anybody ousted <laughs> him. Yeah. Was, and he, was he having he lasted, much impact? He, he lasted the same length of time as, as sort of Neil Kinnock. So, you know, he was there for quite a long time, um, as you say. And um, But biographers um, and others have, have been quite dismissive. He was described as a, a sort of little-known mediocrity. Um, and that he lacked the firmness and resolution to be a leader. He was he was funnily enough described as a stopgap leader um, all the way through. Um, but for nine years, you know, as you say, he only um, left the office when he um, uh, when he died in uh, 1817. But um, but he was there for some significant moments. And you mentioned there um, the assassination of Spencer Percival. Um, and I've actually been digging into the the, the archive of the Times itself um, for the um, the report of of the debates in the House after. Um, Percival was assassinated, um, and it's it, it's quite moving, really, that he he paid such um, tribute to um, the prime minister. He was, of course, up against him in the House of Commons. The Spencer Percival, when he was prime minister, was prime minister from the House of Commons. So it made Ponsonby a more significant figure at that time. Um, and afterwards, of course, Lord Liverpool, then from the House of Lords, meant that, um, that the sort of political battle was was, was elsewhere. But when um, Spencer Percival was assassinated, there's a, a, a wonderful speech that's reproduced um, in the Times there um, from May 1812, um, when he said that though he widely differed from Mr. Percival in political questions, no man entertained a higher opinion of his honour, nor a warmer affection for his person. And he, at the end of his speech, um, is recorded to have, have broken down, greatly affected. And I think we can conclude from that that he, he was in tears when he, he made that speech. So... It's, it's quite a good reminder that sort of, you know, whilst the political battle, particularly um, sort of in the in the 19th century at that time was was quite fierce. Um, you still have this kind of um, a time of sort of crisis like that when you've had an assassination of a member of parliament. Like today, the, the leader of the opposition is very keen to associate themselves with the sort of public mourning. It's interesting that because actually the thing about Spencer Percival's uh, death is that the, the reports of it being sort of celebrated outside Mm. At Parliament, he wasn't particularly popular, but the the, the reaction from George uh, Ponsonby um, inside the House was obviously obviously very different. Um, yeah, and he also um, seconded the motion that was put forward in the Commons to give a a, a sizable um, pension and um, and sort of financial compensation to um, to Percival's family. And he he this this is the speech that he was giving when he made that tribute was to say that he was very anxious to. Uh, to second that motion so that he was was seen 
from the opposition side as, as, as being entirely um, at one with the government over it. George Ponsabine, uh, the second leader of the opposition. Next, we turn to George Tierney. George Tierney, um, T-I-E-R-N-E-Y. And uh, like most historians, I've got the problem here that I've only really ever seen that written down. So if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I (laughs) apologise. If you Um, want to get in touch in the usual ways uh, to correct (laughs) your pronunciation. any any of his uh, descendants who, who want to, to to get in touch, um, but he was um, another politician of Irish ancestry. Um, he was actually born in Gibraltar. Um, his father was a wealthy merchant who was working out there, um, and originally been um, born in in Limerick. Um, but George was uh, born in, there in Gibraltar, um, but grew up in in England. Um, educated like many of um, politicians of this this era and um, into the modern era at Eton and then Cambridge. Um, he studied law um, and was then called to the bar, but decided to go into politics. Um, he sat for a number of English constituencies, um, unlike Ponsonby, who, um, as we heard last week, began his career in um, Irish politics. Um, Tierney was um, in uh, a number of English constituencies, but um, all the way through his career, he found himself um, in search of, of a seat. He kept finding himself defeated or unable to find a, a constituency. So he uh, had his career interrupted several times during um, his uh, parliamentary career. Um, but he attached himself as a um, as a young politician to um, the Whigs and became uh, a radical and was, was noted for his quite radical views on parliamentary reform, um, and particularly also on the French Revolution, which was a, a big uh, dividing point in uh, British politics, the reaction to the French Revolution. Um, and he was very much on the side of those who thought it was a good thing. Uh, there's a famous um, Gilray cartoon of him dressed as a French executioner. Um, so he was on very much on that side. He moderated his views as he sort of went on, as many politicians do. Um, <laughs> but, um, but during the late um, 1790s, um, Charles James Fox, who we spoke about a few weeks ago, um, actually quit Parliament for a time. Um, and that left an opportunity for him to become a more prominent figure in opposition. This is this is this is great. This story and it's a reminder that, that being leader of the opposition is <laughs> slightly <laughs> more straightforward today, perhaps. Indeed. So, um, in the late 1790s, um, he was uh, a prominent um, oppositionist. He was uh, opposing the government of William Pitt, um, and uh, as you say, this led to one of the most extraordinary incidents of his career, and indeed of, of all of these times. Um, during a debate in May 1798, um, the Prime Minister William Pitt accused Tierney of, um, a, of a lack of patriotism uh, for not supporting the government's defence policy. Uh, and as we're very used to hearing, he demanded that the Prime Minister withdraw this accusation. Accusation. The Prime Minister refused, um, and rather than having Lindsay Hoyle sort of intervening to settle the debate, um, we had uh, the extraordinary prospect of uh, this leading opposition figure, George Cheney, challenge the Prime Minister to a duel with pistols. Um, <laughs> And, and, and uh, the two this, of them, this was like what's late, very late 1790s. This is 1798, yes. Um, was that and... a common thing for the leader <laughs> of the opposition to be challenged to a duel by the Prime Minister? Not, not, not terribly common, no. And of course, he wasn't really um, so officially leader of the opposition then. He was still a sort of opposition radical. Um, and the two of them uh, met on Putney Heath on Sunday, the 27th of May. Um, and there were comments at the time um, and, and jokes going around that it was rather an unfair contest because Pin 
Pitt was quite notably a, a thin man, um, and Tierney was, was rather fatter, and so presented a bigger <laughs> target. Something more to go at, yeah. Exactly. Um, both of them fired their pistols, but thankfully um, both of them also missed, um, which uh, satisfied honour. Um, and so um, it's not a, an incident in history that, uh, uh, that it could have been. Um, so um, after that, he, um, he actually, a few years later, after Pitt had, uh, was replaced as Prime Minister by um, Henry Addington, um, Tierney became... Uh, a member of the government, he began some negotiations, and just as we've seen in the last week, um, someone crossing the floor, as he did in that way, um, didn't go down terribly well with his colleagues, um, and he joined the government as treasurer of the Navy, um, and he then also joined the government of all the talents, which was formed um, under Greville, uh, which also Charles James Fox was a member of as well. Um, that government didn't last very long, um, and so when that fell from office, uh, he he went back into opposition for the next 20 years. Um, and we we now know from last week that there were nine years when George Ponsonby was leader of the opposition. Um, and um, during that time, he was somewhat in support of him um, in the chamber, but certainly wasn't a fan of his leadership. He thought he was quite ineffectual. Um, and his main role then was um, to lead on matters of financial policy. And so we could perhaps identify him as the first recognisable shadow chancellor um, at, at that time. Um, and Ponsonby was uh, was notably um, unsuccessful, um, various attempts to get rid of him. And um, Tierney was trying to uh, get somebody else put in post or or himself put himself forward. Um, but it was, wasn't until Ponsby died um, that he uh, became leader, but he didn't become leader immediately. Uh, he was of the view that they needed to settle the issue of the overall party leadership. At this time, as we've talked about before, there was uh, leadership in the House of Lords and there was leadership in the House of Commons as well. And he felt that that needed to be clarified. So he resisted becoming leader for a while uh, until the following year when um, 113 um, Whig MPs signed a letter calling for him to accept the leadership, um, which he did um, and became leader in 1818. That's quite about, uh, you know, today we're talking about letters of people want, people writing letters to, to get someone to stop being leader rather than writing letters uh, asking them uh, to be leader. And then how did he actually get on then once he became uh, just finally the, the sort of recognised as the leader of the opposition? Um, he was quite effective. Um, he developed a reputation over the years as an effective parliamentarian and effective debater. Um, and in fact, there was a general election in 1818 where um, he made some gains and so was uh, on, on that metric was, was quite successful. Um, but he made a major blunder um, in 1819. He overplayed his hand, having been quite cautious up to that point to try not to scare the horses and uh, sort of be quite incremental and, uh, and and sort of bring people over gradually. He made quite a barnstorming speech, uh, moving a motion for a committee on the state of the nation to kind of crit criticise the government. Um, and that was very heavily defeated. Um, and although he hadn't expected to win the motion, um, the scale of the defeat was quite significant. Um, and that was seen as a personal humiliation. Um, and so biographers have said that he never really recovered his standing um, from that. And <clears throat> whilst he soldiered on for about another year, um, he stood down as leader um, about 18 months later. George Tierney there, and the last leader of the opposition for this month. It's the brilliantly titled Henry Petty, Third Marquess of Lansdowne. If you hadn't put a ban on people who had become Prime Minister, we would actually this week be looking at Earl Grey, uh, which I think would have been entirely on brand. But um, <laughs> but unfortunately, um, you've banned us. From We've, got enough, Prime We've Minister. got enough Grey. Uh, We've got enough people of the Grey family. Program. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so um, instead, today we're looking at um, 
Henry Petty Fitzmorris, uh, the third Marquess of Lansdowne. Um, and it's quite poignant we should be doing that today because it's actually the anniversary of his death um, on this day, uh, the 31st of January um, in 1863. Um, but to sort of take you up to where he became um, leader of the opposition, he was um, from an aristocratic political family. Um, you do surprise was... me with the, the called Henry P- Petty Fitzmaurice Third Marquess <laughs> of Lansdowne. But that wasn't that wasn't his name when he was It'd born. Go down well in the Red Wall. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was um, he was born at Lansdowne House. It's now um, I think the Lansdowne Club in Mayfair um, in seventeen eighty. Um, and uh, like the last couple of leaders that we've looked at, he was actually of Irish descent. His father was born in Dublin um, and his father was elected to both the Irish and the British House of Commons, um, but never took his seat because before he could take his seat, he succeeded to his father's titles um, as the Earl of Sherborne um, in the Irish peerage and also uh, as a baron in the um, peerage of Great Britain. So he went instead to the House of Lords. Um, and then um, when uh, Henry, his son, was uh, two years old, uh, his father became prime minister um, and that government uh, lasted less than a year um, and was brought down um, by the resignation of our old friend Charles James Fox in um, 1783. Um, and after that, his father was created as the first Marquess of Lansdowne. Uh, and it was at that point that um, Henry um, acquired the courtesy title of Lord Henry Petty, uh, which is how he was known during his early political career. Um, and uh, like most sort of aristocrats at that time, he was at public school and then um, Oxbridge. He was at Westminster School um, and was then educated at uh, first Edinburgh University and then Cambridge. Um, but despite that aristocratic background that you mentioned, um, he didn't actually in- expect to inherit his father's titles. He, he had an elder brother, uh, John Petty, who was his half brother uh, and 15 years older than him. And he'd already entered Parliament and become um, quite a sort of eccentric figure and an ally of, of Fox in opposition. Um, and it was he who inherited the title of Marquess of Lansdowne when their father died in 1805. Um, and by that point, Henry had uh, followed him into the House of Commons uh, and he was a rising star and might have expected to stay in the House of Commons. Um, he became Chancellor of the Exchequer in the Ministry of All the Talents. Um, that ministry, we've noted over the past weeks, has contained quite a few of our leaders of the opposition. Um, yes, so explain, and, uh, explain what that was. The um, it's Lord Grenville was the Prime Minister. Yes. And this was, I mean, we, Gordon Brown tried a, a similar thing when he became Prime Minister, the government of all the talents, and just sort of picking people from across the political spectrum. Yes, and it's worth saying that, um, you know, at this time... Um, I mean, we're having problems uh, in politics at the moment with the definition of a party. Um, but um, certainly in, <laughs> in, in politics at that time, it was quite a sort of fluid system. And so you had people going in and out of government um, at different times. And uh, this is something that, that Henry Petty sort of uh, was also um, sort of noted for. He, he took office at various times when others in his party didn't. Um, so he, um, he went into that, that ministry, which didn't last for particularly long, but he became Chancellor of the Exchequer for just over a year. Um, and then uh, a few years later, his half-brother died childless, um, and so Henry succeeded him as the third Marquess of Lansdowne and was propelled um, into the House of Lords. Um, and it was there that he sort of made his um, career in opposition. He was supporting the Whig leaders, um, Grenville and Gray, if I'm allowed to say that. Do I get a ding for that? I'm not sure. Um, there we are. And, um, <laughs> and he supported Gray during those years in opposition um, to the Tories. Um, at the same time as our, our friends from previous weeks, um, George Ponsonby and George Cherney were leading in the Commons. Um, and uh, throughout that time um, in his career, he was uh, a supporter of progressive social reforms, um, ending the slave trade, 
uh, removing discrimination against religious minorities, including um, Catholics and, and Jewish people who were um, at that time quite heavily discriminated against in the law. Um, so he established himself as a leading figure in the Whig Party alongside them. Um, and from then on, over the succeeding decades, he had a very long life. Um, he enjoyed a distinguished career as one of the leading statesmen of the next few decades. And he had several stints uh, as leader of the opposition in between periods in government. Um, he was briefly in government in 1827 um, as Home Secretary for six months, um, which we think we have a high turnover of ministers sometimes nowadays, <laughs> but that, that, was, that was quite something. Um, and then later on, he was a senior figure in, in Whig governments, um, uh, and he held office as Lord President of the Council for a total of, I think I worked out, about 16 years on and off, um, right up until the 1850s. Um, and I think the thing that's most striking about him, we now talk about people being a senior party figure if they've been in Parliament for a couple of years um, or grandees. But I mean, he was really the genuine article. He, he was um, in high office and at the sort of top of his party for, for decades as a close advisor to the prime ministers that he served. Um, and his later years was, was a trusted advisor to Queen Victoria as well. Yes. No, I saw that. I mean, that's I mean, how... Why is it then that he didn't, having been there all that time, held all these top jobs, you know, Chancellor, like you were saying, Chancellor, uh, Home Secretary, um, uh, Lord President of the Council, and so on, and at various points, Leader of the Opposition too. What stopped him ever quite getting the job? Is it, as ever with these things, quite often just down to bad luck, bad timing, or was, or was he actually just not quite, he was lacking that thing that we always think you need to make it to Prime Minister? Yeah, I think that's certainly true. He he lacked the certainly the ruthlessness of wanting to get to the top at all costs because um, he had several opportunities where he could have become prime minister. And I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about him. Um, from 1824 onwards, he was um, essentially de facto leader of the Whigs in the House of Lords. He took over from um, Earl Grey um, and was um, was seen as the ob obvious candidate to be prime minister. And, and Grey offered, in fact, in 1830 to stand aside for him. Um, but he turned that down at that time. And there were several other occasions during the latter part of his career um, when he was consulted over the formation of governments. The, the Queen, Queen Victoria, um, would discuss those um, with him. And he was summoned several times to see whether he might be able to form a government. Um, and although his supporters always encouraged him, he always turned it down um, or at least never tried to press his claim. And I think it's um, it's, it's quite a sort of... Uh, rare sense of modesty for a politician that he, I think, genuinely preferred to be the kind of wise old respected statesman um, offering advice rather than being the main man himself. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.